The Ear to Asia podcast is made available on the Jakarta Post platform under agreement between the Jakarta Post and the University of Melbourne. Hello, I'm Ali Moore. This is Ear to Asia. As the structure of Australia's population changes, we'll have a population that is more disposed to the learning of Asian languages. But people ask the question, well, what sort of a job will it get me? And so we're faced with the broader problem of how to integrate the study of Asian languages and societies into people's cultural worldview. More broadly, there is the benefits to Australia as a society and our place in the world and the region. I think we get taken more seriously when we can show that we have taken time to really understand another language and culture. So I think that's also part of the value of learning a language too. In this episode, how seriously does Australia take the learning of Asian languages? Ear to Asia is the podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia Research Specialist at the University of Melbourne. Even taking into account the toll of the COVID-19 pandemic, there's little doubt we live in the so-called Asian century, with the dramatic rise of a number of Asian economies. So you'd think countries like Australia, whose economic well-being depends on growing trade ties with China, along with India, Indonesia and other regional giants, would take the task of understanding what makes their Asian trading partners tick very seriously. Such Asia literacy means coming to grips with the often complex histories, cultures and politics of Asia, and that often requires a degree of proficiency in the languages of Asia. So is Australia sufficiently skilled to meet the linguistic demands of deep engagement with the region? How does learning Asian languages fit with Australia's national interest? And how committed is the government to encouraging language proficiency? What will it take to get more Australians to take up Asian languages? Joining me to discuss these questions via Zoom are Asia legal scholar Melissa Crouch, Professor and Associate Dean of Research at the University of New South Wales Law School, and Asia historian Dr Lewis Mayo of Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. Welcome to Ear to Asia, Melissa, and welcome back, Lewis. Thanks. Thanks, Ali. Well, when I was growing up in Australia in secondary school in the late 70s and early 80s, and I know I'm showing my age here, languages like Japanese and Indonesian were really growing in popularity. If we fast forward now to 2021, can you draw us a picture of how healthy or otherwise Asian language programs are in Australia? Melissa, if I start with you. Sure. Um, and let me take the example of Indonesian language programs. Um, there's a couple of ways we can look at it. One, I guess, is to think about how many universities in Australia teach Indonesian. How does that compare to the past? If we go back to the early 1990s, we know there were about 22 universities in Australia that taught Indonesian. Today, there are perhaps less than 12 universities that still offer Indonesian language programs. Um, so at the university level, there are far fewer universities now compared to 30 years ago um, that offer the possibility of studying Indonesian. Um, and as a result, uh, the number of students overall who are studying per year um, has declined. And what about other languages, uh, particularly Chinese, for example? Lewis, can you give us a picture of what's happening with other language programs? So with Chinese, there's been a 
growth over the long term and the number of students taking these languages. But that is um, directly related, I guess, to the large growth of what we call heritage learners, that is people of Chinese uh, cultural descent who are interested in learning the language because of their connections with it. I would say that the number of people from non-heritage backgrounds, that is people educated in Australia who are not of Chinese background, that relative to the amount of promotion of the Chinese language, I would say that the uptake is quite small still. Can I just explore that for a minute? In terms of those with a heritage background studying, is it right that in in a major university in, in Sydney or Melbourne, a Chinese language program will largely have students who are Australians of Chinese background or indeed students from China itself? Well, it's an extremely varied population in terms of um, linguistic profile. You'll have Chinese Australians who've grown up speaking nothing but English and having their education entirely in English, who may have you know familial connections to China, but not particular levels of linguistic proficiency. That's one group. Then you'll get people who may have had a small amount of their education in China before moving here and who have moderate competence but need help with their literacy because, as you know, literacy issues in Chinese character-based languages are quite serious because it um, takes a lot of time to learn to read and write Chinese, even for native speakers. I I can give the example of my own family in New Zealand. I have two nieces who are native speakers of Chinese because their mother is a, um, a Chinese speaker and they've grown up speaking Chinese with her and with her grandparents, but neither of them would have what I would call comfortable literacy in Chinese because they haven't had a Chinese education. That means that catering to the needs of those Australians, that that very varied group is significant and, you know, it is right for the universities to be engaged with that population. And I would say that, you know, the universities have reasonably well calibrated programs that distinguish between a big range of different kinds of learners and that uh, for students who actually take the language and persist through to second or third year, you know, the levels of satisfaction with the subject are quite substantial. But I guess the issue is how many people are taking the language as a total fraction of the Australian population, uh, and also how many people are taking the language relative to its global importance. And uh, with Japanese, of course, you have a much smaller percentage of students who have a heritage profile, and Japanese programs tend to be large, but there are substantial numbers of students taking Japanese at university who have uh, reasonable competence in Chinese and who therefore can draw on their knowledge of Chinese characters and Chinese vocabulary to learn Japanese. Melissa, you've given us the picture of Indonesian, and Lewis, you've given us the picture of of Chinese and, and touching on Japanese. But Melissa, I know it's not as easy to quantify as we might think it would be, but what about other language programs? I note that the Swinburne University of Technology in Melbourne has recently closed its Chinese and its Japanese language program. La Trobe has decided to close its Indonesian program. Just generally, is is it that maybe some programs are closing, others are opening? What's the sort of overall picture? I think at the moment, sort of post-COVID or during COVID, um, the picture is one of programs closing. Um, Some claim that on the basis of sort of financial issues, but others uh, appear to have no 
correlation with the financial viability of the program. So, for example, we know at Swinburne that the university leadership there said it didn't really have anything to do with the financial viability of the program, that rather Swinburne University was sort of refocusing on the STEM disciplines. And so I think it is part of the broader challenge of um, championing the HASS disciplines, the humanities and social sciences in Australia, um, is also one of the reasons why language programs are under threat. Um, and you're right that the other universities, uh, so Western Sydney University, I believe, is in the process of closing its Indonesian program, um, La Trobe, also its Indonesian program. The Hindi program at La Trobe was also under threat, although I understand at this point in time, they have still uh, managed to keep it open for now. Um, and then other universities like Murdoch University, again, had a consultation around potentially closing their Indonesian program, but again, have for now decided to keep it, though in many ways, I think we would expect that some of these programs where they might be smaller at universities will potentially be subject to review in the future and remain under pressure. And, and Melissa, do we know this is obviously very much a tertiary education picture? Do we know what the picture is like at the secondary school level, even the primary school level? Because uh, is it fair to say that it would be unusual for someone to pick up a language with absolutely no connection to that language prior to entering university? Yeah, so the picture at uh, the level of state and territories is diverse. Uh, Professor Jolo Bianco from the University of Melbourne actually did an excellent study on um, Victoria where uh, he found actually that enrolments in languages had actually been improving to some extent, uh, contrary perhaps to opinion in primary and secondary schools. And perhaps in part because of state government support, but that's certainly not the case, you know, in, in other states across Australia. And so it is quite varied um, and diverse. Uh, there is uh, the Western Australian government, I understand, is putting in um, support and funding to boost the numbers of students who study um, Asian languages, and particularly Indonesian, at primary and secondary schools with the hope that that would then flow on to universities. Um, and you're right that at the university level in Australia, I guess particularly for Australian students, students, that they are most likely to continue advancing their language skills that they started in secondary school, rather than sort of simply suddenly pick up a new language. And so that's one reason why that pipeline from secondary school in particular is really important. And particularly for languages like Indonesian, it's more often the case that a student will start learning it in high school and then decide to advance it at university, rather than sort of um, simply pick it up cold at the university level. And, and Lewis, of, of the Asian languages that, that we do teach and that are being learned, do we have any sense of which ones are the most popular and, and what's driving that? Oh, well, I think there's no question that the three um, large East Asian languages, uh, Chinese, Japanese and Korean, are the core of that. And they have different profiles uh, in terms of what, what student uptake. And as I say, we have the contrast between heritage learners and non-heritage learners. In the case of both Japanese and Korean, I think the appeal to non-heritage learners is a lot to do with things like popular culture. And in the case of uh, Korean, a very concerted strategy of promotion of Korean culture um, by the South Korean government um, running back into the late 1990s has been quite decisive in, um, I suppose, what we might call shaping Blackpink and BTS learners of Korean uh, and creating a demand for that, which is, you know, a very interesting phenomenon in world terms. 
we've seen that very recently with BTS's success in the global pop music scene. For those who don't know, BTS being the world's biggest band. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, and and whereas in the case of Chinese, of course, you've got a complex set of issues. One being that everyone recognises that China is enormously important and influential, but because of the stances that the Chinese state takes in a number of issues. I guess for people who are of non-Chinese background, there is a degree of what might be called caution in relationship to the learning of that language. And indeed, I think more broadly, caution about engagement with Chinese society and culture as a whole, which is you know, often very sad because the Chinese state itself manipulates this sort of xenophobia in support of its claim that it is an unjustly treated entity in the world system. So there are some complex issues relating to politics in terms of uptake of languages and people's perceptions of who the languages belong to, if you like. Mm. Given Australia's economic reliance on Asia and you know, particularly China and our geographic position, a little bit of context about why it matters, why language proficiency is important, Lewis. How do you answer that question? Well, I mean, a very simple way of answering it in relationship to Chinese and Japanese, of course, is that a tiny fraction of what is written in Chinese is translated into English. And although a larger body of material that's written in Japanese is translated into English than is the case with Chinese, that means that overwhelmingly people are reliant on mediated contact with that culture, which is an extremely unsatisfactory situation to be in. I mean, if you imagined what it would be like if one's relationship with the United States involved no knowledge of English and was entirely reliant on translations of American cultural products into, say, Spanish, the sense of engagement with what's going on in the United States would be shallow. I think that's you know, certainly the case with uh, people who are engaged with China even those living there who don't have even a small command of the Chinese language, let alone something approaching literacy. I mean, that's a very easy point to make that you simply don't know if you don't speak the language. Melissa, it's so true, isn't it? There is so much nuance. There's so much uh, around a language that goes far beyond just (laughs) a simple word. Yes, that's right. Look, I think for the individual, there is intrinsic value in learning a language. I think to spend your life monolingual is to, in many ways, limit your curiosity and capacity to understand the world. If you are a a curious person and engage in a kind of lifelong learning process, I think the process of learning a language really opens you up to different ways of thinking about the world, different ways of understanding and conceptualising the world, um, and really, I guess, seeing the world through different eyes, if you like. Um, Obviously, there's also the kind of career advantages that sometimes get a more prominent place, if you like, when we're talking about the value of learning an Asian language for an individual. You know, if you're a student who is keen to apply for a graduate position with uh, DFAT, Department of Foreign Affairs, it is, you know, a huge advantage for you as a candidate to have a language particularly ones like Indonesian, um, that are crucial to our bilateral relations with our neighbours. And, you know, it's it's my understanding that DFAT is actually finding that the number of uh, applicants that they're getting for their graduate programs who have proficiency in an Asian language is actually, or particularly Indonesian, is declining. 
I guess then more broadly, there is the benefits to, uh, you know, Australia as a society and our place in the world and the region. I think we get taken more seriously when we can show that we have taken time to really understand another language and culture. So I think that's also part of the value of learning a language too. And indeed on that, particularly on, uh, I suppose, the personal and the professional impact of knowing a language, we thought that we'd uh, bring to our listeners the personal stories of of a couple of Melbourne-based professionals. Uh, Here's Greta Cunningham, and she's closely followed by Andrew Godwin. My name's Greta Cunningham. I am currently working for the Victorian government and have worked in government for about 15 years, as well as with the United Nations and with AsiaLink at the University of Melbourne. I have had a bit of a long-standing general obsession with all things Asia, and I guess I chose Indonesian, given that it's our largest neighbour to the north and highly populous, but I really didn't know what I was getting myself into. And I really wanted to travel, to live, to study and to work in Indonesia, and the more I learnt, the more I wanted to spend time there. And I guess what I really understood is that while there are Indonesians who speak some English, being able to communicate in Indonesian, it really allows for a far deeper connection. And of course, that's true for any language. And what I understood more than anything about language is it's never about just the language, but it's about gaining a deeper insight into a culture, a psyche, politics and economy. And I really can't state strongly enough how important that has been for me. In my work for government, I have used Indonesian quite directly when I was working for the Premier's Department for the State Government of Victoria and working in international relations. I worked quite closely with, for example, the consulate, Indonesian consulate here on Victoria's relationship with Indonesia. And the language enabled me to build a much deeper rapport and trust than I would have been able to do without language. Uh, I've also used Indonesian directly when I was working for the United Nations in Jakarta in Indonesia on refugee issues. Learning Indonesian for me has been as much about understanding the language as it has been about understanding the experience of being a migrant, a refugee or a visitor here in Australia and indeed the broader experience of being other or different. Really, it's helped me develop a strong passion for social justice and equity. I'm Andrew Godwin. I've been an academic at Melbourne Law School for the past 16 years. Prior to that, I was in practice for 15 years, 10 of which were spent as a foreign lawyer in Shanghai. My decision to learn Chinese goes all the way back to secondary school. I attended a school that taught Chinese. I had a number of Asian friends. Uh, It also helped that I have a bit of a photographic memory, so learning the characters was relatively easy for me. I then continued my studies at university where I majored in Chinese as part of my arts degree. And what the language did for me was give me a window into Chinese history, Chinese culture, and it opened up a whole new world for me. And that world has had a huge impact on me since then. It's been an important part of my professional life. I spent 10 years in China, 10 years in Shanghai, where I practiced as a foreign lawyer. And without my Chinese language skills, I wouldn't have been able to do the work that I had to do. I wouldn't have been able to review the laws in Chinese. I wouldn't have been able to communicate in Chinese. It was an incredibly important tool for me during my professional career in practice. After I finished 
in practice in 2006. I came back to Melbourne and continued in academia. And Chinese has continued to be an important tool for me, particularly in my research. So that was uh, Andrew Godwin there and before him, Greta Cunningham, two Melbourne-based professionals with their personal stories about the importance of having learned a language. And I suppose, uh, Melissa and, uh, and Lewis, for me, Greta's point that it's never just about the language but gaining a deeper insight and Andrew echoing that with language being a window into history and culture. Uh, Melissa, what do you think you miss if you don't speak the language? Certainly from uh, the experiences of my students, um, some of whom I supervise for research projects, I think what they miss if they are studying a, a country or a system but don't have the skills to read sources in that language is they are entirely reliant on secondary sources and what other people are saying about the country in English. And so, um, as Lewis mentioned before, I think there is a huge dimension that they miss and in many respects, you know, particularly at the university level where we would really be wanting students to go deep in their knowledge. Um, I think that's really, really difficult. And Lewis, that was the point that you were making earlier about mediated contact you will always, to a certain extent, your connections, if you don't speak the language, will always be through the filter of someone else. That's exactly right. And one of the things I'd like to add in um, response to the sound grabs that we just heard is that different individuals who learn a language that is not related to their own society will engage in radically different ways with that society. You might get people uh, whose interest is sport, for example, and whose competence in Chinese or Korean um, permits, you know, a deeper engagement with golfers, for example. Or you might find scientists whose um, work on, say, environmental issues is, you know, enormously enhanced by their capacity to engage with on-the-ground situations, which you can't do if you don't know that language. And when you think about the incredible diversity of different contexts in which Chinese Australians are engaged with different parts of Australian society, you would think, well, you know, we would want those of different community backgrounds to be as engaged with societies like Indonesia and China and Japan in as big a way as is possible. And it's not simply about people with, you know, high levels of aptitude for learning languages. I I cite myself as an example, think of myself as an extremely average language learner, but I'm incredibly persistent. You don't have to have a photographic memory to succeed with Chinese. You simply just have to spend the time and you'll get there. It's a very much a, a skill which combines intellectual propensities and capabilities and willingness to repeat enough to be able to become competent. And that is a time issue as much as a, a skill issue. And I think that question of when it is that people give up with a language, that has to be addressed in terms of any strategy for language planning. You're listening to Ear to Asia from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. And just a reminder to listeners about Asia Institute's online publication on Asia and its societies, politics and cultures. It's called the Melbourne Asia Review. It's free to read and it's open access at melbourneasiareview.edu.au. 
You'll find articles by some of our regular Ear to Asia guests and by many others. Plus, you can catch recent episodes of Ear to Asia at the Melbourne Asia Review website, which again, you can find at melbourneasiareview.edu.au. I'm Ali Moore, and I'm joined by Asia researchers and educators Melissa Crouch, Professor and Associate Dean of Research at the UNSW Law School, and Dr Lewis Mayo of Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. We're talking about Australia's commitment to Asian language proficiency. Given the enormous benefits that you've both just talked about of having proficiency in another language, and particularly given the topic of this podcast, Asian languages, let's turn to that very core question of why the decline in the numbers and the popularity of Asian language programs. Lewis, do you have a, I'm sure there's a myriad of reasons, do you have a, a sense of what is the the overwhelming reason? Part of it is just to do with the demands of early study and the disillusionment that people experience when confronted with something that is hard to acquire. Often one of the problems is that learners come in with perhaps unrealistic expectations of how quickly they will acquire competence. And when those expectations are frustrated, then you know there's a high dropout rate. And we know that if you're learning a related language, you're going to acquire it much more quickly because you've got a vocabulary and a grammar repertoire that you can draw upon. And so when you come to, say, the distance between East Asian languages and English, you're looking at fairly long-term investment if you're going to get any kind of return. And I think that's a practical reason why people give up. Lewis, do you think that also in that context that there's a, a part of giving up because especially when we look at, for example, Chinese language programs, if you have a number of people in the course who are of Chinese heritage, those who are not think, well, it's really hard and there's no way I'm ever going to be able to match the proficiency of my fellow students. That's true. I think that certainly at tertiary level, the programs and certainly our program at Melbourne, the programs are very careful to ensure that that inappropriate grouping of students doesn't occur I would suggest that there's a broader problem of perception, which is that, you know, in contrast to countries in which, you know, language learning is taken for granted as something that you have to do. And an example of that would be Finland. You know, Finnish and English have nothing in common. It's as hard for a Finn to learn English as it is for an English person to learn Finnish. But um, we know that the Finnish uh, education system is extremely uh, successful at producing, you know, very high levels of bilingualism as well as very, very successful outcomes that there is in Australian society and in New Zealand and Canada and in the United States. Uh, In other words, in the broad, white-dominated Anglophone societies, there is a general sense that language learning is not something that you really need to learn to do. And this situation contrasts with the very high levels of bilingualism found in most other parts of the world, throughout Africa, throughout Asia, in Latin America and indeed in in much of continental Europe. So there is a a kind of cultural problem that I think is specific to the white Anglosphere. Language learning is simultaneously too hard and unnecessary. And I think that quite a lot of work has to be done to overcome that perception. You know, language learning is considered to be something that's done by people with a talent for languages. And I think this is a mistaken view Language learning should be seen as essentially something like driving, something that any adult can actually accomplish. 
Melissa, do you agree that there's, uh, I suppose, this perception too hard and not necessary? And if you do, I wonder to what extent that need for a greater appreciation of the importance of Asian languages is something that is driven by government policy, by funding policies. Yes, yeah, so I'm reminded of something that I for some reason, frequently hear my students say now, which is, well, if I don't know the answer or how to translate it, I'll just use Google Translate. And of course, we kind of cringe at that because while Google Translate may be helpful in some circumstances, it's not necessarily always accurate or it's not something you can rely on if you're wanting to be precise necessarily, depending on the language and and what you're translating. Gosh, that could end up with some very, very difficult situations, I would imagine, if you relied on Google Translate. Yes. Mm. Um, So I guess one thing I want to say, first of all, is the role of the media. A number of years ago, when I was teaching Bahasa Indonesia in uh, primary schools and a little bit in high schools, you know, I was really struck by what students had heard about Indonesia from the Australian media. Um, And at that time, it was all about things like the Bali bombings and terrorism. And they were hearing all these negative things about Indonesia. And sometimes they'd even say, oh, you know, my parents told me this. It was frustrating because, you know, one of the things that you often say as a language teacher is, well, you know, it's good to learn this language because, you know, one day you might go to Bali or Indonesia for for a holiday. And my students would go, well, no, we don't really want to go. We've heard this country is, you know, like this from the media and so it was really hard to as a language teacher I think you're often confronting some of the negative perceptions that the Australian media might have about a country like Indonesia or at least a very distorted perception that only picks up on you know one aspect of something that's happening um, in that country rather than the whole range of things that are um, you know many of which are much more positive about our relationship with Indonesia. Which reflects the political side of the debate and the caution that Lewis was talking about earlier. That's right. Yeah, yeah. The other thing I just want to say was around, I guess, incentives and access. Um, and again, let me just you know, give you an example from my own experience. While I studied Indonesian in um, high school and university, I did want to study Burmese. Now, obviously, it's a slightly um, a rarer language or one that's less common. But it was literally, it was impossible for me to do it as part of my degree because it wasn't offered at the university I was at. Um, Only in more recent years has it been offered at ANU. But again, I think it's the only university in Australia that offers it. And so I sort of came to the end of my degree and it took a while because I really, I won, I had to find funding and then I had to find a way to study this language, which is, I think, harder for many of these smaller languages where, you know, materials are maybe harder to come by, um, it's harder to find courses, and the access issue is much more difficult. So I think having structures and courses in place where it's easy for students to pick up a language is really important. And then I guess the other thing related to that is just kind of the incentives. So again, I, you know, I recall in my year 11 and 12, there were incentives at that time in Victoria to study a language as part of your year 11 and 12 studies. And there were some sort of you know, benefits to doing that. I think you got some sort of extra you know, marks um, and students knew that. Um, and again, I think at the university level, there are smart ways that universities can think about making languages you know, easier and more attractive to students, particularly from STEM disciplines where there might sort of traditionally be less students from STEM disciplines taking languages simply because it often adds a year to their degree. You know, if they have to add a whole diploma course to their program, you're then looking at a six-year degree rather than a five-year degree. Whereas if, as I understand at Melbourne, and maybe Lewis can correct me on this, is 
some universities where there are breadth degrees to start with for the undergraduate degree, there is actually, you know, strong encouragement for a science student, for example, to take courses outside of science. And, you know, one of that could be a language. So I think those kinds of structural incentives are really important for students. Lewis, that's obviously incentive for students, but what about incentives for institutions to offer courses? And that's particularly relevant given when we go back to the point that a number of Australian universities have recently cancelled Asian language programs. And I know that a number of years ago, the Australian government committed to promoting national strategic languages. To what extent has government support waxed and waned over the years? And where are we now? Um, It's been erratic. I think that's the broad view of it. I I don't think that any working language teacher at tertiary level in the Asian language field feels that we are adequately supported in our endeavours. When the government mouths platitudes about commitment to the study of Asian languages, we're often left wondering, well, how do we get access to that support? We tend to be in a situation where Asian language knowledge is specialised field rather than something that is general across the university, that means that it's fairly rare for senior university administrators to have an understanding of what is involved in the learning of Asian languages and what resources need to be committed to the learning of those subjects. And so we're very much prey to the um, shifting winds of internal administration, and it's extremely hard to get any kind of long-term security in terms of planning. And the recent closures of Asian language programs across the country are signs of that instability. And I'm sure we're going to be looking at a situation in five to six years' time where people will say, well, how did that all happen? And there'll be another tidal wave of maybe that's too large a tsunami of interest in Asian languages and and then it will fade away. This is something that those of us that have been in the system for a while are used to having experienced. And Melissa, let me ask you, I mean, I wonder how that ad hoc and, and that lack of consistency in policy sits with one thing that is consistent in government policy, regardless of the political leanings of the government, is the, the rhetoric about the vital importance of Asia. So on the one hand, all sides of politics acknowledge our position in the region, but then it doesn't seem to flow through on a consistent basis to the need to be proficient in regional languages. Yeah, I think in the past, Australia was certainly looked to by others around the world as a centre of Asian studies and was really a, a leader in the field. I think that comes under threat when many of the core pillars of that, you know, language programs in particular, are, are shrinking in many respects. I think the government, while it has had, uh, for example, these national languages, strategic priorities, if you like, um, and in the Asian Century White Paper of 2013, that included uh, Arabic, Indonesian, Chinese, Hindi, Japanese, and Korean, although it potentially included other languages over time. While those statements are there in, in the past and in policy, it hasn't necessarily flowed through into the funding agreements that government have with Australian universities and you know one of the things that was most disappointing this year is that even that language around national strategic languages appears to have been taken out of the Commonwealth funding agreements with universities and replaced with just sort of a broader reference to languages which we're not quite sure what that means and so I think the overall effect of that is whereas in the past a university would have to advise the minister that they were planning to for example close a language program 
and presumably there would be some sort of discussion at the government level um, about that closure. Now it seems much you know, much easier for a university to simply be able to close a program and there's very little government um, pushback on those efforts. Melissa, at the same time, though, we do have now uh, in Australia this job-ready graduates package, and it's interesting that that actually discounts the cost of a language major to students. So on the one hand, you would think that would make a big difference, but I, I note that it also discounts the cost of other courses, for example, psychologists, other professions that the government deems we're going to need in the future, and that's received quite a bit of publicity, but it's hard to find a headline about the discount of a language program. Yes, so on one hand, I mean, fantastic that languages now, uh, you know, appear to cost students less than they did in the past. I think the challenge is, is that's not necessarily well known by students. So while the government may say, well, this is an incentive for students, if students don't know about it, uh, then it can't be an incentive. Um, so I think there's work to be done both by the government and universities if they do want to use this policy change as an uh, incentive for students to take a language, they need to tell students about it. I think more broadly, though, yeah, the challenge is also that the Job Ready Graduates Package appears to sort of divorce language learning from um, some of the broader humanities and social sciences subjects. You know, for example, it's, it's usually common for a student who's learning a language to also take some courses perhaps on, you know, for example, if you're doing Indonesian, Indonesian media or Indonesian politics or Indonesian culture, but the job ready graduates package, as I understand it, sort of differentiates between those two groups of subjects um, and the student would be paying more for to study Indonesian history um, as opposed to studying Indonesian language, whereas really we should see those as two kind of interconnected areas of study and in many ways your language learning is enhanced by at the same time learning about its history and its politics. So Lewis, as we draw this podcast to a close and we look ahead, how do you think that we get this greater appreciation of the need for language proficiency? I mean, it's obvious in terms of where our economic interests lie in terms of our geopolitical interests, given our physical location in the region. What do you think we need to do to get a greater appreciation? This debate has been going on for decades, and so there's obviously no quick fix. And I think it's one where you sit down in a, in a meeting room full of people and they say, well, learning an Asian language is very important. Everyone will nod and say, yes, that's quite true. And then they will go away and none of them will think about actually sitting down and trying to do it. So I guess what we need is a broader culture that acknowledges the importance of the learning of Asian languages in particular. I suspect that there will be, as the structure of Australia's population changes, we'll have a population that for various reasons is more disposed to the learning of Asian languages as it becomes, in a sense, less dominated by Anglo-Celtic and uh, European background people. And of course, in, in Western Europe, Asian languages, you know, are of uh, minority specialised interests rather than things that are part and parcel of everyday life. And of course, the connections between um, Australia and the North Atlantic world are substantial. And so moving away from that will take some time. But the problem is, as Melissa alluded to earlier, that the approach to Asian languages and studies of Asian societies and cultures has been extremely instrumentalist. People ask the question, well, what sort of a job will it get me? And so we're faced with the broader problem of how to integrate the study of Asian languages and societies into people's cultural worldview. And this is something that involves a lot of work. 
And I don't get the sense that there's really commitment to engagement in that work. And we, as overworked professionals in this field, are expected to do this. And we simply don't have the time and resources to do the teaching and promote the subjects at the same time. So one important example of this is, you know, the field of Asian studies, which doesn't involve Asian language acquisition, it's supplementary to it, uh, has no backup in the high school system. So enrolments in Asian studies remain small, simply because people don't have that as an area of inquiry at high school level. And that means, of course, that you don't follow the path that I myself followed, which is basically from interest in Asian histories and cultures and societies into the learning of Asian languages. So, you know, that's one area that I think needs discussion. And I think it's also very important to think about different constituencies in Australian society and their interests and needs as far as learning Asian languages are concerned. For instance, I don't think people think about people in rural areas who are actually very practically engaged with Asian economic and cultural worlds as a constituency that might be targeted in terms of the promotion of Asian languages. I suppose if we're talking about how to generate a greater appreciation of language proficiency, Melissa, that need to uh, really inspire people at a very young age to provide a pathway, to provide access, that's pretty key, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Um, You know, I think that there definitely needs to be a holistic focus. And to be honest, I think many of the answers we know, a lot of it comes down to, you know, political will and will at the university level. If we take, I guess, four areas, business, state governments, federal governments and universities, from the business sector, I mean, I think we know that there are many in the business sector who are on board with wanting to see more graduates who have linguistic skills and and skills in appreciating and understanding Asian cultures and societies at a very deep level. They, They know the business arguments for that. You know, at the state level, I think while we do have some good or perhaps emerging examples in Victoria and Western Australia, certainly more can be done. I think other states can learn from that. But I think there's a lot to do for states to then be working with the federal government and for the federal government to really put its money where its mouth is. I think it talks a lot about the Indo-Pacific region, but we don't really see that translate into concrete support and funding for Asian languages. Um, And then you have universities. And again, I think there is a symbiotic relationship between the federal government and universities. I think universities in Australia need to see themselves and their leadership role in the region. Um, And I think language programs and supporting students to learn languages is a key part of that role. As Lewis mentioned before, I think we do need to see vice chancellors and other university management leaders who have come through Asian language programs, Asian studies programs, who have an appreciation for the persistence that it takes, as Lewis talked about, but also just the real benefits that it brings to the individual and to society. I think both of you have given us a very good picture of those benefits. Before I let you go, Melissa, can I ask uh, if listeners want to hear more of your thoughts and, and look at your research, where can they find you? You're active on social media. 
yes, you can find me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is um, Melissa A. Crouch, C-R-O-U-C-H. There's web pages, I'm sure, if you search my name, you can find it. But I would also recommend the Asian Studies Association of Australia. That is one of the academic associations that does try to advocate for Asian studies and um, the study of Asian language programs in particular. And, and Lewis, is there anywhere you would point people to go to? I'm extremely unactive on social media. I spend most of my time learning languages at home. So um, you can look for me on the um, Asia Institute website. Terrific. Thank you both so much for, well, your commitment to Asian language proficiency, but also for explaining to us why it is so important and some of the challenges involved. Thank you very much for talking to Ear to Asia. Thanks, Ali. Thanks, Ali. A pleasure as always. Our guests have been Asia legal scholar Melissa Crouch, Professor and Associate Dean of Research at the UNSW Law School, and Asia historian Dr Lewis Mayo of Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. Be sure to keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, Spotify or SoundCloud. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And please help us by spreading the word on social media. This episode was recorded on the 17th of June, 2021. Producers were Eric Van Bemmel and Calvin Parham of Profactual.com. Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2021, the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore. Thanks for your company.